friends. This morning I'll conclude a little series on the cross of Jesus Christ. I hope it's been a blessing to you. As I've said many times throughout the series, it's the main thing. Uh, if you don't get anything else out of the story of Jesus, you've got to get the cross or you've missed it all. It is the story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. All of the stories and rituals and types and prophecies that Israel knew about spotless lambs and days of atonement, about Passover, all point to Jesus Christ. And it's so clear to us as we read the story backwards, having had a chance to not only know our Old Testament storyline, but the good, old, true, historical story of Jesus Christ. Looking backwards, as Monday morning quarterbacks, we could have told those people back then, why aren't you folks getting it? It's crystal clear to me. Why, if I would have been there during the life of Jesus, I would have been on his side and fully clued in and loyal and on board every step of the way. Today we're going to talk about the three crosses of Calvary. And often when we think of Jesus and the cross, we imagine pictures that we've seen or crosses on buildings outside the building or inside of the building. And often there's one cross and we think of the cross of Christ, which is the main thing. But of course, you know that the way the story really goes is that day, there were three crosses. And actually, historically, there were thousands of crosses and tens of thousands of crosses because it was a preferred method of execution that the Romans loved to implement to draw attention to their great power. And um, the high price to be paid for defying that power. I want us to read... the portion about those three crosses from each of the four Gospels before we start uh, because I think it makes a couple points for us. And I think in our churches we're never impoverished to read Scripture. In fact, sometimes when I hear the preacher, including myself, I think if you just would have read the Bible and shut up, we would have all profited the more. So let's read a little Bible this morning and we'll say it's okay. All right? So first, from Matthew, then from Mark, then from Luke, then from John, those crosses of Calvary. First, Matthew 27, if you turn there, verses 33 to 45. Matthew 27, starting at verse 33. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mingled with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. They put above his head the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. 
And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we shall believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now. If he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers also who had been crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. Let's read it again from Mark chapter 15. Verse 22 and onward. Mark 15. Beginning at verse 22. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come now, down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. You notice a couple little details are different there. Uh, It's good to know those things. Then from Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 32. We're actually given additional detail. Luke 23, beginning verse 32. And two other also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. 
And one of the criminals who were hanged there were hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And then finally from John chapter 19, we round out our portrait of the three crosses. John 19, beginning of verse 17. Love to hear all those pages turning. You know, it's fashionable these days not to bring a Bible to church because you already know it's on the screen. But I'm not giving you that. And uh, I'm a little bit concerned about folks not bringing Bibles with them anywhere. Um, Real danger of biblical illiteracy in this amazing age of information. So thank you for bringing yours. All right, John 19, beginning verse 17. He says, They took Jesus therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. And Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross, and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, this inscription many of the Jews read for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered and said, what I have written, I have written. Awesome. Three crosses. Some of you may uh, know that the church down in Spokane, formerly known as Spokane First Evangelical Free Church, adopted this three crosses as their new name about the time I was leaving the church. They didn't do that as a gift to me, and they didn't do that as an insult to me. Uh, They did that with me before I left. And the story behind that, just in case you ever wondered what in the world is going down on down there, is that a couple of the college students came to me and said, Pastor Lee, when I tell our friends what church I go to, and I say, First Evangelical Free Church, they say to me, what is that? What is evangelical? Nobody can pronounce that, not even the people in the church, by the way, half of them. And then they always say to me, what is that? Is that Baptist? Are you charismatic? Are you Christian? Uh, Yeah. It was such a mouthful that they found it to be a stumbling block almost. And maybe once upon a time, everybody knew what 
evangelical was. I think people still know what Spokane is. But boy, it was quite a mouthful. They said, can't we change to something easier and more awesome? So I said, well, we'll look into it. And we had a church-wide discussion and debate for two years. (laughs) Really, it was the most delightful thing we ever did as a church. And we just said, well, what about that? What's in a name? And what should a church name represent? What could it represent? What would be some of your favorite options? So we talked about names related to geography, names related to history, names related to theology, right? Someone finally said, Pastor Lee, what would you pick? And I said, without skipping a beat, I said, three crosses. They said, really? Where do you get that from? (laughs) The Bible, no. Well, the truth was I'd preached a little sermon to kids at summer camp at a lack of Bible camp down in Idaho on the three crosses of Calvary. And I loved that, that topic and that story so well that it just stuck in my mind for years. Well, everybody went, hmm, you know, because they never want to go along with the pastor just automatically. It's so dangerous. But we just continued to debate it. We took everybody's recommendations, and we had pre-votes and first votes and second votes and meetings until finally my son came to me and said, Dad, I'm sick to death of this. Can we just decide already? But my feeling was that for a church to make a decision, it ought to be open, transparent, patient, right? Honest, just, humble. And let's just all chew on that thing for a while so that when we all kind of come together to vote, we vote with uh, a full heart and thoughts well fixed in our head about what we're doing. So we finally did that, and it passed a million to one. And we changed the name of the church. I won't tell you about the one, but there's always got to be somebody. And they actually left the church over it, which is their right. But I have always um, loved this biblical portrait of what happened on that great day. When the sins of all mankind were dealt with once and for all by the beautiful and perfect Son of God. Indeed, there were three crosses on that hill that day. And uh, you notice that all four gospel writers mention the three crosses. And we chose to change the name of our church to Three Crosses because compared to what it used to be, it's easier to say, easy to remember. It's thoroughly Christian, thoroughly biblical. But along with all of that, and perhaps I would say most of all, it gave us an opportunity to tell a story. And if people would say, what's the name of your church? We never wanted to say, well, that's Pastor Lee's church. (laughs) right? Or Spokane First Evangelical Free. When we said three crosses, they would inevitably say, well, why three crosses? And I thought there was one cross. What do you mean three crosses? And immediately gave all of us an opportunity to tell a story 
if the occasion, right, presented itself. It was an evangelistic opportunity. And no longer was the name of our church a problem, except for the one guy that quit the church. It was actually a blessing. The fact that there were three crosses here is an intentional part of the story on part of all four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Luke especially gets into the detail of the conversation that went on there among the three that hung on the crosses that day. So I want to zero in on it with you. To me, it is so inspiring and instructive. And again, it gets right to the heart of the gospel message that we need to drink in for ourselves and be ready to share with others as God permits opportunity. Number one, the three crosses of Calvary are biblical history. All three writers agree in it in their account of the crucifixion. And it's given as an important point of historical reference. We have more detail about the death of Jesus Christ than any other person in antiquity. You'll often hear skeptics say that you can't trust the Bible. And that you can't believe what Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John would say about Jesus Christ and his life, let alone his death. And yet these same skeptics in every generation, are quick to receive what the historians say about Aristotle, Alexander the Great, Cleopatra, Julius Caesar, right? Drink it in and, and, and serve it up by the gallon in our colleges. This is history. You need to know these things or you'll surely fail and never graduate with a degree. But when we have... First-hand accounts of the death of probably one of the most famous personalities in the first century other than Caesar. They say they doubt it and have no good reason to believe it. Oh, you have every reason to believe it because these evangelists had no motivation to lie. And in fact, they all gave their own lives as martyrs for the testimony that they consistently gave in their ministry about the life of death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's good history. It's reliable history. Now, in the gospel accounts, of course, you notice that we have agreement, but not duplication. Some people say, well, the versions of the life and death of Christ are slightly different as I read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Aha! That proves that they're not reliable. Au contraire, that proves that they are absolutely reliable and independent testimony given of what they saw and or knew. Do you know even today, if there's some great accident or catastrophic event and newspapers go to get a report from the people who were right there as eyewitnesses and then they compare all of their stories, don't you know? that there are often differences in detail, even discrepancies, and yet they'll all swear in an affidavit, I saw that wreck. It was her fault. She ran the red light. I remember when my little sister died in a snow avalanche and I got a call from the Seattle 
post-intelligencer, newspaper reporter to get my story because I was there. Stood by a few yards away as the snow swept her away and her friend. I gave the story as I best knew it and represented it, and I certainly was there. And I had no reason to embellish. I was still in shock. And it was my sister. You want the story? I'll tell you the story. So I gave it. The next day, the brother of the other little girl that died in the avalanche called me and he said, What are you telling them? That's not what happened. And then he gave me his story. And I thought, what on earth? I was quite sure about my details. So was he. When you see the details in the crucifixion of Christ, there is amazing um, parallel and congruence in their versions. And the things that different really don't even contradict, they simply add detail that the others have chosen not to add. It is, a, it is a very trustworthy and authentic report. The accounts are the same and that all four state that there were indeed two other men crucified with Jesus that day, one on his right, one on his left. But there are other details which one or more of the Gospels do not include. And as my daughter always tells me when I'm preparing sermons, Dad, remember you're saying details are delightful, right? That's why we love Luke and his gospel so much because he gives mass detail. He really does. They all do, actually. Well, then, John does not say the other two men were criminals, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who are called the synoptic gospels, they see the same on a lot of things in the narrative. They all do say that they were criminals. Well, then only Matthew and Mark say that the criminals joined in with the passers-by in hurling verbal abuse, that they both did. But very interestingly, Luke alone tells us the fact that just one of the criminals was mocking Jesus. The other did not. Quite interesting. And it is exactly this differential between the man on Jesus' right and the man on Jesus' left that makes this idea, the three crosses of Calvary, such a powerful gospel tool. The three crosses of Calvary are history, and secondly, they are fulfilled prophecy. You notice that in one of the gospel versions, it said he was assigned a place with criminals and quoted from Isaiah 53, which is probably the suffering servant passage um, par excellence in all the gospels quoted, often quoted. And you know Isaiah 53 very well. And when you think of Jesus and his cross, Do not these words resonate with you? For Isaiah said, Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, 
acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. And yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is sled to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. There you go. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. How amazing that Isaiah, 700 years before the time of Christ, should give us this portrait of the great suffering servant of God in so much detail. Numbered with the transgressors, interceding for the transgressors. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How many people on that day as they stood and watched those three men suffering on those crosses. Thought a thing about Isaiah 53. Maybe somebody did. They certainly did afterwards. Jesus did not die alone that day on that cross. He died with two others. There were three crosses, just as the word of God said. Well, the three crosses are not only history and fulfilled prophecy, but they give us a powerful picture of contrast. Let's talk about these three men and how they were the same and how they were different. All three of those men were being executed that day for being enemies of society. The thieves were, Jesus was. Two of them for being common criminals, but Jesus for being a threat to the established order. He was a threat to the Jewish leaders for challenging their doctrine, 
were challenging their place in the world. He was a challenge to the Romans for disrupting order. He was a threat to Pontius Pilate for threatening his governorship. And yet the two were guilty. The one was innocent. All three that day would indeed die in the flesh. Yet their spirits had very different destinations. If you did nothing else in your life when you thought about spirituality and your eternity, your mentality, and breathing your last, how good and how productive it is to think about those three men that died on that hill that day. All men, but destinies differing immensely. All three were men, but they were three very different kinds of men. Two of them were ordinary mortals, but the man in the middle was God incarnate, fully God and fully man, a man like no other, the very son of God, which was the primary source of their mockery, the target of their insults, was his very identity as the son of God, the Messiah of Israel. The man in the middle did not originate from earth, but from heaven. The man in the middle had committed no crimes. He was completely innocent. The man in the middle was not only innocent in what he was crucified for, but he was impeccable in his behavior all of his life. The man in the middle was not apprehended and condemned to die, as were the criminals, but he gave his life willingly surrendered himself to the authorities after being betrayed by Judas Iscariot. Do what you've come to do, he said. No one takes my life from me, he said, but I lay it down willingly, John 10. The man in the middle was not being vanquished by sin and death. Indeed, he was in the process of overcoming sin and death and the devil, bringing victory, not just to himself, not for the sake of the kingdom of God, but for the sake of every single one of us who would align ourselves with the Lord God Almighty and say, I would be a child of his and I would gladly dwell in his gates forever. The man on the right and the left were victims. The man in the middle was a victor. And who saw it that day? Who sees that today? I find it interesting the opinions that people have of Jesus of Nazareth even to this day. Of course, there are millions like us who declare him to be the son of God and we sing his praises And declare the excellencies of his father who brought us out of darkness into light. Every Sunday, we have a high opinion of Jesus, the highest possible. There are those who have a lesser opinion of the man in the middle. They say he was a good man, a good teacher. How unfortunate that he was cut down in his prime. He could have been such an excellent philosopher if he had had a chance to finish out his system of philosophy 
That's what Thomas Jefferson said about Jesus Christ. If he just would have had a little more time, he could have matured in his thinking and be excellent and wise and systematic like like I am. Oh, Thomas, you must decrease. Let him increase. Or like John Lennon, who imagined a perfect world without religion. In one of his interviews, he called Jesus Christ a disgusting Jew. All men are not the same. And their estimation of the man in the middle is not the same. But it is the identity of the man in the middle that will decide every man's destiny for all eternity. And this is a portrait worth gazing at, thinking deeply about, thinking about the man on the right, the man on the left, and the man in the middle. And they are not the same. But the great thing about this whole narrative to know is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did not write what they wrote to give a history that you might dispassionately read and then shelve as you move on to your next history. These are gospels. This is narrative given to you, sworn to be a true testimony, but they are given and written for one purpose. Not that they might tell a story, but that you might hear a story and make a decision about the man in the middle. John so sweetly said this in his gospel. In chapter 20, he said, many other things Jesus did. But these are written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing in him, you might have life in his name. He said at the end of his gospel, if I wrote down everything that Jesus ever did and said, the whole world's books could not contain the half of it. But these are written that you may know. That's what he said, right? John 20, 31 or something like that. It's a lack of Bible camp verse, people. And I tell you this, when Luke so exquisitely zoomed in his camera to the conversation that went on between those three on that hill that day, it was to draw you in not just to know the story, but to identify strongly with those three individuals. Hear the man insulting Jesus as did the Jews, as did the soldiers, saying, if you're the Christ, if you're the Son of God, get yourself down off of this cross. Save yourself from this predicament. And by the way, us too, Did he believe in the identity of Jesus as the son of God? I think not. He was cynical. It was insulting. It was sarcastic. If you are, then save yourself. I dare you. Who identifies with that man? Who proposes to adopt that attitude? for a personal spiritual orientation 
I've known people that were very angry and very stressed out in life situations, shaking their fist at the heavens and saying, God, if you're any kind of God at all and if you're real, fix this thing. And I know our Heavenly Father so often just looks at us and says, seriously, why don't you start that sentence over again? Like my wife used to say to my sons, check your attitude. He's not a lovable character as you read the story. But then there's the other one, hanging there for the same guilt. First, he corrects his partner. He said, do you not fear God? (laughs) We deserve to be hanging here. We are paying the just price for the wrong that we have done. But this man has done nothing wrong, he said. And then he turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, Remember me. Also a statement interacting with the identity of Jesus. He was not cynical. He does not appear proud. He has nothing to be proud about or to fight for really anymore. None of them did. But it really was a confession of faith that he indeed was a king and that there was a kingdom that he was soon to receive. And he thought, I'm with him. I know what your destiny is, Jesus. Would you be so kind as to include me in that? doesn't get any more dramatic than this. Jesus could have said a lot of things to that second criminal. What makes you think now, after all this time in your life of not serving God, that we should just let it all go and have you join me in paradise? Or he could have said, are you really sorry? I want to see that you're sorry on the look in your face. Tell me again how sorry you are. Recount for me the wrong that you've done and the price that was paid by other people for all your crimes. Prove it! Or he could have said, why don't you go to catechism classes for one year and maybe then we'll accept your confession of faith and baptize you. Time will tell. Ladies and gentlemen, with Jesus, there is no such thing. But it is like the story of the prodigal son is that if a man turns in his heart, our God is instantly ready to receive and embrace a repentant heart. Welcome home. See you in the morning. Truly, I say to you, and when Jesus says truly, you got something to bank on there, right? Always. Truly, I say to you, you will be with me today in paradise. And this is so instructive. 
First of all, it does put a challenge to the reader to think about each of those three men on each of those crosses. Which one am I? Am I the cynical, crucified robber hurling insults at Jesus? Maybe you're not that man. Are you the man in the middle? Clearly not. No one is the man in the middle. There is only one Son of God, the unique and perfect, holy Messiah. So like on the price is right, you move from door number one to door number two to maybe door number three. And surely anyone with a heart and a brain can read that story and know that what is being highly recommended to you as the reader is to identify with that one. That one who had a change of heart, that one who in the last gasp, an hour and minute of his life, threw all upon Jesus, threw himself upon Jesus on the cross for mercy, for hope, for eternal life. And however much hope he had in making that request, it was immediately gratified in full by the words of Jesus himself. Truly I say to you, you'll be there. It's instructive for our churches for evangelism. How simple is it to obtain eternal life? Let us not complicate the gospel by insisting that people memorize our church catechism and know 85 points of fine doctrine before we receive them fully because there is only one basis for being in or out And that is your relationship and trust in the Son of God. As John the Apostle put it so succinctly in 1 John, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. It is one or the other. It is indeed black and white. It is truly this or that. And it is our job, people, with a heart full of love and compassion being driven by the very holiness of God to go out in our community and let people know that there is a great divide and that everyone has a choice. Come to Jesus. And there is no other choice for you. Finally, there is a destiny that is a breath away and a heartbeat away for every single one of us. And for those that we love and those that we know, our next door neighbors here in town, our grandchildren and children and cousins, we all have relatives. Everyone has a great need to know that there is a choice presented like the choice that these men made this day about the man in the middle. And who will tell them If not you, are you quite sure that someone will courageously step up in your place and make sure that they have a chance to know? If it is not for us who are biblically instructed and faithful members, about to go to a quarterly meeting at Chawila Church here, Grace Church in Chawila. What is the name of this church? Chawila Evangelical Free Church? I want to confuse you with the guys up in Colville because there's no comparison. 
if you won't tell them that there is a choice, who will step in the gap and make sure the job gets done? I have found that there is no more unpleasant task than telling people they're going to hell. And so we avoid it like the plague. A lot of us are non-confrontational by nature. We'll do anything but tell the truth to the person who needs to hear it. We'll try to recruit our spouse to take care of it or send a friend. Any roundabout way other than directly, we're happy for the message to come across. But there is such a great need in this hour, I would say, in America specifically, in Western civilization specifically, to get real with the truth and to have some gumption to stand for your convictions and especially when it comes to telling somebody the good news that could save their soul for eternity. Do you not have the conviction of the truth and the love for their soul to tell them what they desperately need to know and maybe explain it to them for the umpteenth time in a new creative way, asking God to help you make it clear? It is job one for us. I dare say everybody in this room is on their way to glory, except for maybe a couple of you faking it out there. But most of us know the Lord. And we identify with the repentant thief. But not everybody does. To be truly an evangelistic church takes great courage. And it would be better if we canceled every program of the church and every meeting of the church and preoccupied ourselves with scattering about this town and pursuing genuine, authentic relationships with people so that they would know that we love them, that we love God, and that we're serious about all this business and make sure that they know. Otherwise, if we have all the potlucks in the world and youth groups in the world and women's meetings in the world and quarterly meetings till kingdom come and never put out the challenge about the man in the middle, we have utterly failed in our mission. I've surely said enough because we do have a quarterly meeting. But this is a portrait, these three crosses of Calvary, that captures my attention on so many levels. I thank God that he sent some angels into my life to confront my stubborn adolescent pride and tell me I needed Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the faithful gospel record that we had a chance to read again this morning. May you light our hearts on fire, Lord, with the message that you have provided everything that we need and paved a path for salvation in your own dear son. And that it is our job and our duty, our pleasure to tell that story over and over and over again to anyone who might want to hear. Help this church, Lord, to be a soul-winning church, as we always used to say. 
so that on that great and coming day, there shall truly be thousands of people from this very valley falling down before you, praising your name and casting crowns before you, saying, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. We pray in Jesus' name.